as a, you know, this isn't really an announcement, this is just a, a caveat. I said that I was going to be preaching on the lectionary for uh, a period of time. And uh, that preaching on the lectionary has actually led, there's even some people who aren't here today because they're visiting other churches, which has been really cool. Um, but uh, one of the things about the lectionary is that you don't get to pick your texts. And I spoke to a parishioner about this on Wednesday of this week. Um, that you don't get to pick your texts, which means that uh, sometimes God's picking the text for you. That there was a council, some, uh, I don't you know, somebody knows better, maybe ask somebody who else has been to seminary in this congregation, we got a couple of them, um, how the lectionary came to be. I don't really know, to be honest. Um, I didn't do good research on that. What I know is that the lectionary is a collection of texts. It's a way of getting through the whole Bible in three years. And it, and it helps us, it shields us from bringing our own, what we call eisegesis, our own selves to the text and picking through and proof texting and finding a verse that we want to prove a point and then preaching on it. And I know that you know pastors and preachers who do this. In fact, in many ways, I sometimes fall into the trap of being a pastor and preacher to, that does this. I have something in my life that I'm really passionate about, and then I go through the Bible and I go, where does the Bible talk about this? And I take it out, and then I, and then I present it kind of here, and you're like, well, how'd you come up with that passage to preach on? And I go, uh, I don't know, it just kind of came to me, right? We have, that, we have that ability to do that. That's the, kind of the beauty of having so many Bibles. Until only recently, the, the Bible was not as readily available as it is today. But today we can go through, we can find the stuff that we want to talk about, and we can talk about it. But the problem is, if we do that, then we're oftentimes leaving out a huge percentage of the Bible. And the lectionary solves this problem a little bit, but not completely. There's things that the lectionary doesn't even talk about. Like doesn't, there's, no verse, there's only one verse in the entire lectionary from the book of Lamentations. And so Western cultures really struggle with the idea of lament. How do we mourn hard things? Because our lectionary, the Bible, that, the Bible has something to say about dealing with hard things, but oftentimes we don't read that part. And even the lectionary doesn't cure that. The book of Nahum, the book of righteous judgment in the Old Testament, this idea that, hey, sometimes um, there's going to be really bad things that happen, um, and you're going to want to lash out at somebody else, but you can't do that because that's not your place. That's what the book of Nahum's for. But it's really not good, like, preaching material because it's all about, like, doom and destruction. So they left it out of the lectionary. But every once in a while, the lectionary does something horrible to pastors, and that's what it did to me this week. There's a topic that I want to avoid. There's a topic that I don't want to cover because I know it's contentious, and I know people are going to get into their camps, and I know people are not going to necessarily hear what I'm saying from the moment after that scripture is read. And yet, if we're preaching through the lectionary, sometimes, just sometimes, God slaps us across the head and says, you've got to talk about it anyway. And so that's what happened this week. And next week, with Pastor Evan, um, the, the pastor of this congregation for 17 years, he's, when I'm at annual meeting, he's going to come here and he's going to preach. And he's going to have to preach through, hopefully, Galatians 5. Maybe he'll dodge it. But in this case, I had a bunch of texts to pick from. I had Psalm 42, which Lisa read for us. I had Galatians 3.23, which Lisa read for us. I had Luke 8, which Lisa read for us. And I said, okay, those three, those all talk about this idea of struggling. When people disagree, how do we um, hold that tension well? And then the last one was 1 Kings 19. And that's about Elijah. And I was like, oh, man, I got my out. I can just preach about Elijah. I'll avoid all the rest of it, and I'll get out. So I open up 1 Kings 19, and I preached on it three weeks ago. So I, unfortunately, I can't do that one. 
So anyway, I'm just going to say this before I like launch in. I want to just name two things. The first one is that I'm a human being and I'm influenced by my context. I'm influenced by what's happening in my life. I'm not perfect. Sometimes I bring my own opinions to the table. Sometimes I bring them to the text and I, 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 I offer that you should tell me when I do that. You should question me. You should push back. I'm, not an, I, I, I'm, I'm a spiritual authority by your own offering to me. You have elected me. You've, you've called me to be your pastor. It doesn't mean that I'm completely and totally autonomous. You should push back if you don't like what I'm saying. Because I'm a human being. I'm, I'm a slave to my context to an extent. I can get blown around. It happens. Number two, on the reverse side, I have never and I will never use this space preaching to you to further an agenda. I won't do it because I take it too seriously. I will never go to scripture or use my interpretation of that scripture to grind an axe or to call somebody out specifically for something that they said to me. I will never do it. And if I ever do that, I would call on you to say that I'm not fit anymore to be your pastor. So, with that said, we have two texts from the New Testament this morning that talk about what it is like to deal with the concept of restoration. And I want to talk about restoration for a moment because I actually think, and I'm just, you got to hear the whole thing here. Don't, as soon as I say this, you might just kind of fly off and be like, wait, 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 did he just say? I'm not saying that, just listen through. I'm talking about restoration this morning. I'm going to say that the actual truest meaning of the gospel, the good news is what gospel means. The, the gospel is restoration. You might say, oh, okay, that's fine, John. Well, I thought it was the, the, the cross and, and the tomb and the grave and, and, and resurrection. I'm going to go ahead and say that that's actually not the gospel. That is the means by which the gospel happens. The gospel, so some people like to say, well, I just preach Christ and him crucified. That's fine, but if you don't explain why that's important, if you don't explain why that's restorative, that that is at its core restoration, then you've missed. It's not the whole gospel. It's just a piece. It's just a means. And if you're confused about what I'm talking about right now, that's fine. I'm going to get over this and move on. The gospel at its core is about restoration. It's restoration between us and ourselves first. If you're not restored within yourself, you're going to have a whole host of problems. Secondly, it's restoration between us and the world. If we're not restoring ourselves to our community, if we're not living in har harmony, symbiosis with the planet that we've been given, if we're not living in such a way that is honoring God's creation, we're not living out the gospel fully. Number three, restoration is between you and God. That's what we focus on most in Protestant evangelical traditions. How do I get restored to God? But it's just one of the four. Restoration between you and God. And like I said, we talk about it enough, so I'm not going to go into it. Number four, it's restoration between people and their communities. Between me and any of you. That's the gospel. 
It's restoring ourselves. It's why Jesus picked a diverse population of disciples. He picked people who were, who were on opposite ends of the political spectrum, and he forced them to into, into a room together and eat together, and he washed their feet. Because the gospel is about restoration. It's why he washed somebody's feet who was going to betray him and kill him. Because it's about restoration between people, between one another. That's what the gospel is. It's about restoration. And so we have two stories about restoration. And if you, if you fail to see that it's about restoration, if you only see that it's about the cross, then, I, and then I'll submit to you most of the gospel story, the, the four gospels, they're purposeless to you. It matters nothing what Jesus did in his life if all he came to do was die for us. But if instead we look at Jesus' life holistically, including his death, including his resurrection, but it holistically, then we start to see why it's so important that Jesus was actually doing restoring work long before he ever went to Calvary. He was doing restoring work when he was born of a virgin in a stable. He's doing restoring work when he's healing lepers. And in these two stories, we see Jesus doing restoring work and Paul doing restoring work. Because ultimately, that is the gospel. And so these two stories of restoration go something like this. The first one comes from Luke. It's Jesus restoring a Greek demon-possessed man. We don't really hear that because we don't know where Gerasene is. It could just be another Jewish community, right? But here's, here's the context. Jews and Gentiles, you know, we always talk about Jews and Samaritans. They don't get along, right? Jews and Samaritans, oh, they're always at each other's throats, and then Jesus meets the Samaritan woman. Oh, it's so wonderful. Jews were a lot closer to Samaritans than they were to Greeks. They at least agreed that there was one God. The Greeks, they didn't. So Jesus goes across a river, across the Sea of Galilee, actually, to the, to the region of the Gerasenes, which is a Greek city, not a Jewish city. And he meets a Greek man who believed in the Pantheon, does not believe in Yahweh. And this man is roaming amongst a cemetery, tombs, actually. They didn't have cemeteries, you know, nice, you bury the body in the ground. Put people in tombs, put them in caves. If you've ever been to the Middle East or Jerusalem or any of these places, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's just caves everywhere, small little niches where you can put a body and close it up. This man's roaming around and he's completely naked. He's untouchable. He's probably filthy. Probably covered to head to toe in cuts and bruises. Have you ever seen the movie A Knight's Tale? I kind of think of like the bard in The Knight's Tale. Like when they find him, he's like naked and covered in dirty and like walking around. Like that's how this guy was. But instead of speaking eloquent English, he's just like shouting a raving lunatic. And how did he get there? Well, probably he did something. Got, he had a demon possession. I, we, can, we can talk about what that was like and, you know, how, what, what are the corollaries with mental illness or, or, or whatever. But whatever, no matter how you see it, this man is out of his mind. And so his community, it says, we read it right there in the text, his community uh, was like, we have, in order to have a commun communication with you at all, we have to lock you up. We have to chain you up with chains, bonds, tie you up to even be able to talk to you because you're just out of control. And so what happens? They, they tie him up, they chain him up, and he breaks his chains. 
And he runs off into the wilderness. He was a man who was completely and totally ostracized outside of his community. And the more the community tried to control him, the more raving he became. Until finally, Jesus enters a relationship with this man and goes, I'm not going to chain you up before I talk to you. I'm not going to flee from you because you're naked and you're unclean. I'm not going to fail to speak to you because you come from a different school of belief or you come from a pantheistic theology and I I, I know that the only God is Yahweh. I know that because I'm him, FYI. But anyway, I'm not going to not speak to you. He's thoroughly unafraid of this man. Thoroughly unafraid of him. And so he sees the guy, and he says, you can break chains, but you don't, you don't scare me. And he restores him to his community. The other story comes from Paul in the Galatian church. It's about a group of people, Jews and Gentiles, who are trying to coexist in this new way of life. Like I said before, Jews, they never associated with Greek Gentiles. And so now they're in a Galatia, that's another Greek city. And there's some Jews there, because at this point, because of the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, Jews were all over the, the Roman Empire. There's some Jews that live in Galatia, and they're like, hey, let us teach you how to become Jewish so that you can become Christian. Let's teach you how to be Jewish because Jesus was Jewish. And so they start giving them practices. You've got you to eat this, you've got to eat this. And there was one practice in particular, all the guys can cringe in the room, circumcision. And they were like, you've got you to do this thing. You've got to be circumcised before you can be part of a church. And Paul's addressing them, and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm not going to go with that. I don't like that. I don't like this become Jews before you can become a Jesus follower. I actually want you to become a Jesus follower exactly as you are. However you show up to the table, that's what what you are. If you're Jewish when you show up and you accept Jesus, then be circumcised. In fact, continue to keep the Jewish laws. Continue to eat kosher if that's what you need to do as a Jew. As a vegetarian, I empathize with this. Why? Because I can't imagine, if I came to a faith and they were like, hey, so you're going to have to eat steak now to be a part of this faith, I would be like, that's about to mess up my digestive tract, right? Pig did not seem good to these people. So if you're a Jew and you come to know Jesus, like, stay as a Jew with Jesus. But if you're a Gentile, you don't got to jump through a bunch of hoops first, and that's because Paul has a very clear understanding of what the means to restoration are. If we say the gospel is just a story of restoration, Paul says restoration is Jesus plus nothing. Nothing added. Jesus plus nothing. And so if you add anything, if it's Jesus plus anything is the means, Paul says that's not the gospel that I'm preaching. And in fact, if you hear anybody say that, they're not a Christian. That's what he says right there in the text. I read the whole book of Galatians to try and get around this. That's just what it says. And so you have these people, the garrison demoniac with Jesus, 
where Jesus meets him where he is, and you have the Galatian Greek people, and the Jews are meeting them, or they're called to meet them where they are. And really, it just comes from this. The only reason this is necessary is because of fear. I want you to hear that this morning. Most of the problems between polarity in this country, all of the binaries that we find ourselves in, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, you can list them off. Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, New Age, Pluralist, whatever they are. Evangelical, mainline. All of them come down to the same thing, fear. And that's what's so destroyed in these two texts. They had every reason to fear the demon-possessed man. Every reason. He could, he was as strong as an ox. Could rip chains apart. There was no telling, he was unpredictable. There's no telling what he could do. When the officials interacted with this man, he did not comply. But Jesus says, fear? Fear has no place in my kingdom. Because fear and restoration, they're incompatible. You cannot be afraid of someone and be restored to them. It's impossible. Try it. Think, I'll give you 10 seconds. Try to think of an example where you can be afraid of somebody and be completely restored to them. Five more seconds. Coming up empty. Until the Galatian Greeks stopped being afraid that they wouldn't be welcomed because they were Greek, because they were uncircumcised, there could be no restoration. Until the Jews stopped fearing the fact that somebody new was coming in and might have to, they might have to tweak their theology to welcome somebody, they couldn't be restored. Until somebody could approach the garrison demoniac and say, I'm not afraid of you. I'm going to speak to the core of your problem and I'm going to seek restoration for you. I'm not going to chain you up. I'm not going to lock you up. I'm going to look at the issues that you have and I'm going to say, you know what? You're just as afraid of me as I am of you. Until we get to that point, no restoration can be achieved. And that is why basically all of our binary issues come down to fear. If so-and-so is elected, what will that mean for me? And how about even more extreme than that? Or less extreme than that? How about, what if I have a conversation with somebody who's not a Christian, and they convince me to not be a Christian? I'm going to challenge you right now. That's what was happening in Galatia. What if somebody comes to me with different theology than I have and I can't win the argument? What do I do? Well, maybe you're on the wrong side. 
offer you this. People who are fully free in Christ, fully, fully free in Christ, they're not afraid of somebody convincing them that it's all a hooey. That's people who are scared. People who are fully free in Christ, they're not afraid of their own doubts. Their own doubts are precisely the things that draw them into the presence of God. People who are fully, fully free in Christ, they're not afraid of reaching across the aisle and washing the person's feet. Because what they want is the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of whatever their political opinion, theological perspective, whatever. Fear. That's the opposite of restoration. And Christian songs, we love to talk about being free from fear. I'm no longer a slave to fear. And they're all about fear. But yet none of them are about truly being so free that you are not afraid of anything the world can throw at you. Paul culminates his point. Commentators say that this is kind of an aside. It's one of the most beautiful, it's probably my favorite thing that Paul wrote. Paul wrote like 13 books in the Bible. Well, did he really write this one? Did he really write Ephesians? Let's argue about it. But Paul wrote a lot of books in the Bible, especially the, obviously only the New Testament. That's when he came around. Wrote letters. And my favorite section of any letter that he wrote is this one. Philippians 2, eh, okay, you got me. It's pretty good. They're, they're equal. But this one. And scholars say that it's an aside. Paul's writing the letter and he's, well, he's dictating the letter likely. He's telling somebody what to write. And he stops. Makes more sense when he's dictating than when he's writing it, actually, to me, because I'm a preacher, so I get this. There are some times when I'm preaching and I'm preaching and I'm preaching and I stop because the Spirit convicts me to my core. And it says, you didn't say, you didn't drive it home. And so the whole letter of Galatians, he's making this very carefully articulated logical perspective. If Christ, if not Christ, and we live in the present evil age and all these things, and it's this beautifully well-written story arc, and then he stops in the middle in Galatians 3, and he just, he tells it like it is. He's in his feelings, all right? He just says, look, for all of you, you all are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, all who have been united with Christ in baptism and put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew nor Greek or Gentile. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you're the true children of Abraham. You're his heirs. And the prom- and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you, which is what? I will be your God and you will be my people. He says, Jew and Gentile, you guys are terrified of each other. But you're all in Christ. Slave and free. The, free, the, the masters, they were terrified of their slaves because they, didn't, they, 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 they couldn't break that habit. You know how afraid masters are of slaves? Look at the, ni- this, the, uh, the 19th century United States slave Bibles. 
They took out most of it because they were terrified that their slaves would be free in Jesus. Because when somebody's truly free in Jesus, they can't be held to somebody else's standards. And obviously, slaves, they had to be afraid of their masters. There was fear. Male and female, men and women, they're terrified of each other at this time. Women in Greece hold domineering authority in certain cults over men. Men hold political and civil authority over women. It's, it's a whole mess. And Paul just cuts through all the nonsense. He says, I'm going to stop my argument right now, and I'm just going to take an aside and tell you that you're all one in Christ. So stop living in fear, because where there is fear, there can be no restoration because they are incompatible. So if we are gospel people, are we able as a church, as a people, because the church, FYI, it's not the building. You know how I know that? Because this church was a church before we were here. This church was Evan Gorenson and Jim Bergstrom and Lori Reynolds Stephanie Thompson, Kenya Reichardt. That's who this church was before we were here. So if we are truly a church, will we be able to walk into hard conversations, not as people who choose to silo themselves, to get in their political group or theological group or whatever and say, I'm not listening to anyone else because what if they change my mind? but instead wage forward going, we're free in Christ. You know how high my view of Scripture is? I don't think we can do anything to change it. I think it lasted 2,000 years, and no matter what the perspective, new perspective is that comes up, it won't affect it. Scripture is the mighty, almighty Word of God. You think that something new age is going to come in and blow through Scripture, and all of a sudden in 10 years where nobody's going to be able to have Bibles anymore? I hear this fear-mongering sometimes on social media. I think it's ridiculous. You think that God can be contained? You think that the Lion of Judah will be declawed by the throes of liberalism? You think that a God who could defeat death can be defeated by a political party or legislation? Your God is weak if you believe that. But my God, my God is mighty. He's so strong that I don't have to fear what other people say. He's so strong that I can go out and buy an atheistic apologetics book and read it. Because I'm not afraid to be convinced. He's so strong that when I meet a person of another faith, I look for the ways in which they're reflecting back to me how God created them rather than being so afraid that I can't talk to them. Because my God is mighty. He's strong. He's powerful. And I believe that the Holy Spirit dwells within each believer. Can we engage people? that are so out of our comfort zone, like that man crawling amongst the dead, naked, terrified, and out of his mind.
can we set aside our fear of having it right or not having it right so radically that we would just see this church explode in diversity, explode in perspective change? Can we set aside being right to see God work? Can we set aside our fear of not having enough to give boldly to those who actually don't have enough? I hear a lot about safety nets. I hear a lot about saving up for emergencies, but I don't hear a lot about the emergency that the person's having sleeping on the street. Can we engage with the secular world without being worried that somehow the world can affect us? Is our faith strong enough to push through the garbage? Because when I read about what's happening in the wider world is garbage. Can we engage with people who have, might have stories that scare us? Make us rethink how we think of others? Can we give every single person that we meet the benefit of the doubt that they're just doing the best with what they have right now? Can we look across aisles and just say, I'm willing to live in the tension because the God that we both serve is so mighty and so powerful that he laughs at our differences. Invite the worship team up. I'm going to pray now. Heavenly Father, we don't ask to be right. We ask to be loving. We don't ask to know. We ask for the Holy Spirit. We don't ask for change. We ask for your will. And above all, Lord, we ask for bravery. Not just the bravery to run headlong into difficult conversations with people who disagree with us, but actually bravery. Bravery to look at a person who disagrees with us and not be scared of them. Not be scared of their perspective. Not be scared of where they're coming from. The fear that says, I have as much to learn from my Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, atheist neighbor as I do the person who completely agrees with me lockstep. Lord, I ask for a mighty wind of your Holy Spirit to kick open the doors of the church. That they would not be so wide that the entire world would be able to come in and infect it but they would be wide enough that anyone who claims you, Lord, faith in you, who owns the right to be the heir to the Abrahamic promise, 
would be welcomed, celebrated, and loved. Lord, you are so powerful, so mighty, and your word is so strong that we no longer fear any power of this world, whether it is demons or polarity or authority. We know that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, one of which is our own fear. Praise be to the God who makes dead things alive, where hope is never lost. Amen.